0: So what we're finding, right, what we realize is that um emergency emergency in general emergencies in general are the work of um, of organizations and of stakeholders and even of government is service driven. So it's always we are get education to people, water, etc. And so uh, it tends to um, favor organizations that have huge presence and resources and capacities. In most contexts, this is UN agencies and international organizations and some government stakeholders. And so in these contexts, you find that decisions are made pretty quickly, decisions that have medium to long-term impacts, but that don't necessarily involve people who are based in communities that are affected by the issues.
1: Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Alan. Today, I'll be speaking with the brilliant Nadia Ahijo about leveraging data for girls' education in emergencies. An important and particularly relevant topic, considering we are still living in the midst of a global pandemic. Nadia is a global development professional specializing in the application of gender analysis in philanthropy, advocacy, and policy work. She has over 13 years experience supporting women's rights organizations in numerous countries and across all regions of Africa. Nadia currently works as the program manager for Girls' Education in Emergencies at Equal Measures 2030. In today's episode, we'll learn more about EM2030's project on Girls' Education in Emergencies We'll discuss opportunities to engage women's rights organizations in EIE, and we'll talk about how to leverage data to shift power in this area. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ali, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, Nadia, I understand that EM 2030 has been working to better understand the data landscape and to map opportunities for girls' education in Kenya and Burkina Faso. Now, could you tell us a bit about EM2030's project on girls' education in emergencies and your work with data at the global, regional, and national level?
0: Sure. Um, So for those who don't know about Equal Measures 2030, we work at the intersection of women's rights organization and data, so gender equality and data. Um, And we really do a lot of work around supporting women's rights organizations Um, with advocacy, with capacity support, with research, uh, and just with tracking of the gender equality um, in different countries and in different contexts, Um, because we firmly believe that um, women's rights organizations have important roles to play in decision-making spaces, and unfortunately, they are not present enough in these spaces for multiple reasons that you're all aware of. For this project in particular, we're actually looking at um, education systems in Burkina Faso and in Kenya, and just thinking about how to make them data-driven, but also gender responsive. We found in our work that most um, decision-making around education in countries uh, could be data-driven, but there are a lot of gaps and challenges with the data. Uh, and a lot of the times, actually, these systems are not gender responsive. They, they tend to be gender blind almost um, for different reasons, which is quite a shame. Um, and so a lot of the work that we're doing in Kenya and in Burkina Faso is to really first support women's rights organizations in both countries to effectively advocate right for equitable access for girls and women um, in emergency contexts. And so, for example, in Kenya, this is um, um, displaced persons or host communities um, that host um, IDPs or refugees. In Burkina Faso, we're looking at communities that have been affected by terrorism. And we're also working with decision makers because we also noticed that there's a gap in the use of quality data and evidence by decision makers. Especially relating to education for girls and women in emergency contexts. So, that's also an area
1: that we're trying to improve on through this project. Thanks for giving us that overview, Nadia. So, one of the main themes of data feminism is power, because in today's world, data is a form of power. And so, it's important that we examine and challenge existing power structures and how data might uphold these hierarchies. Now, it's my understanding that. Presently, the National Emergency Coordination is strongly weighted in favor of international organizations rather than grassroots women's rights organizations, which you've already alluded to. Now, I'm wondering, in your experience, why is this a problem and what is the value of involving women's rights organizations in this work?
0: So what we're finding, right, what we realize is that um, emergency, emergency in general, emergencies in general are The work of of organizations and of stakeholders and even of government is service driven. So it's always, we urgently need to get education to people, water, et cetera. And so uh, it tends to um, favor organizations that have huge presence and resources and capacities. In most contexts, this is UN agencies and international organizations and some government stakeholders. And so in these contexts, you find that decisions are made pretty quickly, decisions that have medium to long-term impacts, but that don't necessarily involve people who are based in communities that are affected by the issues Uh, and for us this is a huge gap i mean how do you invest in education um, in a community that's been affected by terrorism but you haven't consulted anybody from that community we know that in most contexts grassroots associations and women's rights organizations are usually the first responders right they're the ones who are present when things happen, and they're the ones who can account, and they're the ones who communities feel closer to, uh, and who communities um, uh, who understand also the lived realities, right, of these communities, and so there's a there's sort of a dissonance in providing um, services and support to communities without necessarily consulting them or involving them or even having them own some of these processes and you find that in the medium to longer term also it affects policy making and decision making on these issues but it's still done in this vacuum where um, huge members of communities that are respondents that are um, supposed to implement these decisions are active Um, yeah so that's That's sort of the challenge that we're finding, but it's also a reflection of international development. Politics as a whole, and it's not necessarily just uh, in education and emergencies. And what we're finding, for example, in in Burkina Faso, um, there's only one women's rights organization. In the there's a, an EIE cluster that makes decisions. Uh, and even when you serve, when we surveyed um, policymakers um, who were who are part of this cluster and who should know all the members of the cluster because they're they were what, like 21 or 22, they said, you know, the only women's rights organization that we know that's working on this stuff is Farway, but um, we're not really sure what it is exactly that they do. Uh, and, you know, that tells you really also, like, there seems to be this expectation that women's rights organizations should go towards policymakers and decision makers, but do they even have the access to these spaces or even the capacity, right? Because if you're going to be participating in... Um, conversations that involve policy making, that involve service delivery, then you have to have um, the data that will allow you to actually tell the story and a story that is the reality of many people as opposed to anecdotes. And so I also think that that's sort of some of the challenges that they face um, beyond the resources aspect as well.
1: Okay, I see. And Mm -hmm. so because these women's rights organizations, the grassroots organizations are closer to the community. The community feels more comfortable talking to them. It's so important that they're included in a more in-depth level because they are the ones who can uplift the voices of those Mm -hmm. who are most vulnerable and those who are affected in that community.
0: And it's, I mean, even beyond that, it's also a language thing, right? Um, You look at countries like Kenya, where there are many languages spoken. It's not just English. You know, there's Swahili. In Turkana, the area where we have our project, people speak Turkana. But you have decisions that are made on girls' education in these contexts that are made in English. Or in Swahili, languages that grassroots communities and affected communities don't understand. Uh, and yet these organizations are supposed to support these agencies in delivering these services and, and government stakeholders in making decisions around teacher training, around you know, all kinds of things that relate to education in these contexts. So it's these kinds of gaps and nuances and contextual realities that women's rights organizations really fill, uh, and that's the value in including them in some of these processes.
1: That's so interesting. I definitely wouldn't have thought of all those nuances, but of course it makes sense. So of course these larger organizations have more resources and as a result, they can collect more, I'm hesitant to say better, but they can can collect more data. So I'm wondering what role does data play in upholding this power that these organizations have and how can we leverage data to shift power from international organizations to those grassroots? women's
0: rights organizations on the ground. I mean, in our experience with this project, and when I say our, I mean um, equal measures, but also our partners, FAWE um, Kenya and FAWE Regional, but also IPBF in Burkina Faso, we find that yes, these, these agencies and government stakeholders, of course, collect data. Um, but at the end of the day, this data, number one, usually it's collected by a consultant, right? That's been hired to go somewhere and collect the data. So most of the time the data is collected by a translation, for example, by a translator. And so a lot of it, a lot of information is lost. Um, there are also um, translations that don't reflect something that somebody was actually saying um, when they're collecting data. The other thing that we find is that the data isn't um, disaggregated at all. They are not able to tell you like you have you do have some research that's done that tries to to look at um, how many girls are affected versus how many boys, et cetera. But to be honest, the bulk of the data is not disaggregated. So even when you go to these repositories of data to be able to to understand what's going on and make decisions, you're actually not able to know boys and girls are seen as like one thing uh and and i'm even minus that like can you think about now children who live with disabilities for example or people living with disabilities they're completely lost uh, in this data collection when you think about uh, non-binary individuals they're completely taken out of this because they, everything is seen as this big blob and you're collecting data without really, really understanding the re, the lived realities of people. So at the end of the day, the response doesn't make sense uh, and it's likely not as effective as it should be. So I think that um, there's that that comes up a lot. So the other thing is in terms of you do find some like grassroots organizations and women's rights organizations that collect data, but because they don't necessarily have the skills or the resources or the time to dedicate, you will find that the quality of the data may not be Um, um, what's expected or what's needed to input into like national policymaking processes, Um, or you'll find that the data is outdated, for example. Um, You find that quite a lot. So usually you find that decisions are made based on data that was collected like five years before. Uh, And so it's not really a response to an, an actual situation. I mean, there are lots of challenges, but I really think that there's a critical role that data can play in just telling stories but stories that reflect realities that can push us to actually make decisions that make sense for people, right, and that, can, that affect their daily lives. And, and for me, I think it with this kind of project, it's feeding those into, into where those gaps exist at national and regional levels. Um, you know, like EM 2030, we have our um, index that we do where we track um, gender equality commitments related to the SDGs for different countries. And we do try to fill some of these gaps by showing, okay, you know, women feel, if, if we continue like this, for example, like women are never going to feel safe walking alone at night, you know, that kind of thing. And it's really telling a story that that is interesting, but also that relies on data that is real and that has actually been collected by people who understand the realities and in which this data is
1: being collected. On the topic of data quality and telling a story with your data, can you talk a bit about how having disaggregated data relates to intersectionality and capturing the different factors that influence how people uh, face the world and the obstacles that they may uniquely face?
0: Sure. I mean, uh, I'll give a simple example, right? This current project that we're working on is on uh, girls' education. Uh, And you find that, you know, when you look at at some of the graphs, for example, and the data, you'll see that they show you that, you know, in primary school, um, you know, you find girls and boys sort of like 50-50%, right? And then as they progress and they get into secondary school, for example, you see a huge drop of girls um, participating or coming back to school. And a lot of the, the barriers in this sense to girls' education, for example, relates to in school, but also out of school factors. Um, Things like um, child marriage, things like um, parents in some contexts, especially in published contexts, prioritizing voice education, um, cultural norms, that kind of thing. And so I think that it's important to have disaggregated data because you can begin to understand in specific communities what the barriers are and how to tackle the barriers. For example, if if many girls and adolescents are not going to school, because they don't have um, access to quality uh, SRHR, sexual reproductive health and rights, then that's a problem. If you can provide menstrual um, goods at schools, then you're already fixing part of the problem, right? Part of the issues that prevent girls from attending school. And this is just a small example, but it's really um, important to have that desegregation so that you really understand that people especially children and young girls and young women uh, face different challenges. Sometimes they face similar challenges as like when it relates, for example, to teachers and that kind of thing. But oftentimes they also face different challenges and to be able to address um, their challenges, you have to know how. who they are and what they face. Um, you find even, for example, a lot now even more so in refugee camps, for example, and in IDP camps, um, there are non-binary children. I mean, this is this is not a secret, right? But nobody's collecting data. Um, and also, I mean, it's a safety issue. Um, If you don't know, then how can you protect? Because we're talking about child protection here, right? But how can you protect if you don't know? Um, Thinking about people living with disabilities, it's the same thing. Um, It's really difficult to go to a government or to an agency that's not specialized on people living with disabilities and to know actually how many children living with disabilities live in a specific camp. Uh, And how do you make sure that they can go to school? Um, you know, something that simple. And so I think these are some of the questions that come up and this is where a lot of the investment needs to go because it's even, we need to think bigger and we need to think beyond, or, you know, we need to know how many boys and how many girls go to school. No, it's not that. There are different um, intersecting identities and there's a need to really think carefully about what these different identities are and how we can acknowledge all of them in the data that we collect irrespective of who we are. And I feel that um, grassroots organizations and women's rights organizations who live in these communities have this information, Um, but because they don't have the capacity or the resources to actually document it and feed it into national decision-making processes, we are not making decisions that really um, address Uh, or allow us to address issues on the long term and actually allow us to to change the way things are done, right, in a way that will be positive in the medium to long term.
1: What you're speaking of right now reminds me of this article that I recently read. It was written from the point of view of an individual who identifies as non-binary, and they were advocating for the collection of more disaggregated data specifically when it comes to gender. So not just having options of male and female, but male, female, non-binary and beyond. And what she said that's really interesting or what they said rather, that's really interesting is in their advocacy efforts, they get the response quite often that, oh, there aren't enough of you for it to be valuable for us to collect that data. And their response is, how do you know how many of us there are if you don't collect the data? So it's a really, It just goes to show how important that data collection is to really get the full picture of that story.
0: Yeah, definitely. And if you're going to be, and here's the thing, right, about policymakers is that if you're going to be advocating for a policymaker to make a decision, the first question they're going to ask you is how many people? Like, it's great to come and tell the story of this one person. And this is what, unfortunately, women's rights and grassroots organizations do very well. They tell lots of stories. uh, But once you start asking for numbers, which is what, unfortunately, policymakers tend to do, they don't have them. Uh, and so it's also a thing of like, how do we account for everybody in a way that will push policymakers to make decisions? Because that's what that's where um, the power currently lies, right? So how do you really Put, um, um, bring policymakers to a place where they understand that they, there are different dynamics that are involved in decision-making and that they have to be able to account for and respect everybody. Um, in the, in, in, and to be able for them to also be able to interpret and read the data and ask this kind of question. Uh, because sometimes also policymakers don't ask these questions, right? When they receive the data and when they have to start passing
1: laws and stuff. Exactly, very, very true. No, Nadia, I think a question that we all have, speaking of girls' education in emergencies and the current landscape, the global landscape that we're living in, what has been the impact of COVID on girls' education in emergencies?
0: I'll tell you one thing, is that number one is that the data isn't being collected. So anybody who is telling you right now that COVID has worsened everything, yes, they are right, but they're not able to tell you by how much or where specifically it's been and what it looks like across different contexts. So everything that we tell you when we're talking about how COVID has aggravated uh, barriers and access to quality education is based on anecdotal information, but it's also sometimes based on experiences with other, um, other similar pandemics like Ebola, um, or SARS, the, the first, the first edition of SARS. So I would say there is that a lot of it is assumptions. Um, what we have been finding um, through this project, um, with the little data that we've been able to collect, is that you know in some countries schools were shut down. Uh, so and 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 to be honest, most persons don't have access to. TV, where they were most of the of the education programs were on television. Others were on radio. But if you have a household where there's only one radio, it's usually the father who has the radio. Then you don't have access to school. Others were online, um, and this is what a, a really small percent percentage of middle class and upper middle class persons who have access to data, just so that it can go to they can go to school. So this is what happened when schools were closed. Um, but even when schools reopen, in some contexts, you'll find that economically, it wasn't sustainable for many families um, to send all their children to school. So many would prioritize boy children and they'd keep the girls at home um, to, to help with child care, to help um, in the market, you know, that kind of thing. Again, all of this is anecdotal information. And what we do know is that um, in the next five years, the, esti- the estimates that we had for the number of children that would be enrolled in primary and secondary school are definitely going to be way less because they have been affected globally and not just in Africa by COVID. Um, The other thing that you're also finding is that many and I'm sorry my connection is unstable uh, but what we're also finding is that in in many many contexts pushed a lot of families to marry their, their young girls Way faster than they had to even though you know this maybe wasn't intentional, so I think the repercussions are, are much more damaging than than we assume right now, uh, and we will only know for sure. Um, If we can begin to collect the data, because for now, I don't think there's enough effort that's or resources that's put into collecting data relating to COVID specifically. Uh, But also, we'll have to look at the the impact around the trends relating to how many children actually are enrolled in school or are able to stay in school.
1: Are you particularly excited about any non-traditional data sources, such as citizen-generated data or administrative data, that may help us track the effects of COVID-19 on girls' education during COVID in, in more real time?
0: I think a lot of organizations, especially smaller research organizations that are based on the continent, track this data and are producing reports. And so it's, it's also a thing of mapping who these organizations are and being able to read some of these stories. Um, but also we're, we're finding that organizations like INE, for example, their Mind the Gap reports um, that they release annually also are starting to include um, elements around COVID. So I would say to really get more information around what's happening with COVID, relating to education in emergencies. I think Aini is a good resource, especially because they source their data from across the world because they're a global network. Those are the, the from the top of my mind, those are the, the top two that I can think about.
1: Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was a great conversation that left me feeling inspired and empowered.
0: Thank you, Ali. it was a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, which is the last episode of season one of the DFN podcast. But have no fear, season two is already in the works and we'll be hosting other live events and book clubs over the next few weeks and months that we encourage you to join to connect with your fellow data feminists as we support one another and continue to learn together. To stay up to date on DFN events, Check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at datafeminismnetwork and on Twitter at datafemnetwork. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion.